Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we are honored to speak with Dr. Keto Swan about his new book entitled Paulus Diaspora, Black Internationalism and Environmental Justice. I thought this was a fascinating, eloquently written, and truly pathbreaking book because it extends the geographies of Black internationalism out to the Pacific, and it importantly shows that environmental justice was a part of the ways that Black power activists and Pan-Africanists conceptualized freedom after colonialism. The title is currently out with the University Press of Florida. Dr. Swan is a professor of Africana Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where he directs the William Monroe Trotter Institute for the Study of Black Culture. He is a historian of Black internationalism, global Black power, and the Black Pacific. Keto, welcome to the show. Amanda, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here today. We're so glad that you're here, and we're really eager to hear from you. So let's get into it. Great. Can you tell us about yourself and your journey uh, to the history of African and African diaspora studies and how you approach the work of Black studies today? That's a fascinating question. And the answer will probably be a journey itself. Um, I'm from the island of Bermuda, which is also where Paulo Camargo is from. I had always had a passion for history but I went to school, Florida A&M University, which is in Tallahassee, Florida, at the age of 16 to study civil engineering. Uh, that became mechanical engineering. That ended in a degree in computer science. But I always had this, this desire to study the black world. So I read in classes, you know, all kind of literature about Africa, political movements when I probably should have been focused on my computer training. Uh, I worked in the field back home as an IT professional. And I eventually actually meet Paulo Camargo who re-stimulates my interest in the study of science and technology. But I was really bent on studying the African world uh, at a black institution. And at the time, this is in the mid nineties, Howard University, in Washington, D.C. had the only Ph.D. program in Africana studies, in African diaspora history, rather. And I, al- I also was just interested in learning more about Bermuda's own history. Um, my father was part of a group called the Black Red Cadre, which was the maybe the vanguard of Black power in Bermuda. But there really wasn't much discourse on that movement in the island as a, as a, as a young person. So I was committed to studying uh, black power in Bermuda and other streams of black political struggle in Bermuda, including the UNIA. But at the time I was not bent on thinking of black power globally. I was very much trying to understand who I was and what black power meant in a place like Bermuda, which was, and still remains a British colony. Uh, I was happy to find that at Howard university, one of my main uh, influences was Joseph E. Harris, one of the founders or the founder 
of African diaspora studies as a field. Uh, Caribbean historians like Selwyn Carrington, I should say H. H. Carrington, um, Elizabeth Clark Lewis, just a, they were just a great body of serious um, scholars centered on the African American experience. Emory Tolbert, and also their network. So people like Franklin Knight had a great impact on my consciousness, and of course, you know, scholars like Jared Horn. Uh, but Howard was an amazing place where even folks not in history, you know, there were only a few steps away. So Haile Garima, you know, iconic Ethiopian director of the film Sankofa, he was always a clear voice. Um, DC activists um, from Ackland Lynch. Um, there were a ton of influences in, in graduate school. I was going back and forth to Bermuda and just peppering my elders in the island have all kind of questions about our history. Uh, the late Eva Hudson, Meryl Brock Swan, you know, these folks are, are local icons in the island who, you know, names won't be popular beyond Bermuda, but for me, they were giants in terms of, of, of black political consciousness. And I think that that always, that sense of grounding, I tried to bring to my work in general and also in particular this book right. about Paolo. Yeah, and I think that uh, if we look at Black power from the perspective of an island like Bermuda um, or any of the other Caribbean islands, um, we can, you know, we see we see a different story, um, which is what I think your book is showing. Um, so uh, you mentioned this briefly, um, but I want to go back to uh, some of your uh, first memories with encountering um, or learning of Paulu Kamaraka Fago. Um, how did his, how and why did his story pull you in? Um, and as a part of this, you make it clear that uh, this book is not a biography of Kamaraka Fago himself. It's more a biography of a political idea that's told through his transregional activism. Can you tell us more about how you formulated this way of studying Black internationalism? Yes, great question. Uh, I remember the exact date when they met Paolo. It was a Saturday afternoon, the summer of, of 1997. I had just, as I mentioned, I had just graduated from FAMU with a degree in computer science. And at the time I had these really broad anti-colonial ideas. I had concerns, personal concerns of did I want to um, just simply, you know, joined the system, so to speak, working in IT. Uh, you know, I was I going to learn skill sets around being self-sufficient? And I had all these questions, more questions than I had answers. And I worked construction for that first summer, and I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time getting dusty and my frustrations with society, <laughs> maybe I could take out, you know, with this take out on the rocks, I would demolish on those kind of things. But, but the reality of it is, I was trying to learn different skill sets, and that was also part of a broader consciousness of Bermuda's own, you know, community and young Black Bermudians attracted to, seriously attracted to movements like Rasta and those kind of ideas. Um, we were trying to find or figure out a, a better way, a different way. Bermuda was very much a colony, and at the time, 
still under minority elite white rule, the political government. So there was not really many opportunities or avenues for young black people. I didn't see folks who looked like me working in IT. Uh, most of these were expats from London or Britain, I should say, or the UK proper. And I didn't know what to do. So a childhood, um, one of my childhood friends, his mother, her name is Michelle Caldoun. She invites us, she invited myself and a few others to our house one Saturday and said, I want you to meet somebody. And she pretty much was like, you have to come. I said, okay, I guess, you know, Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be special, you know, it's my Saturday. And it's Paulo. And he was so quiet. He was so humble. And I quickly realized that he knew so much. As I mentioned before, I was a reader. I was an avid reader. I had read Wretched of the Earth. I had read Rodney's Grand with my brothers. I was reading uh, Horace Campbell's book, Rasta and Resistance. I had read James's Black Jacobins. Paolo knew these people. Like he knew Ciala James. He knew Walter Rodney. Um, he knew the folks that I was just reading about. And so I would ask him questions and I was impressed that he had concrete personal answers. And, you know, now I chuckle. Um, I, I recall I was, you know, you reading books like John Henry Clark, you know, um, Yosef Ben-Yakinen, Black Men of the Nile, you're reading about pyramids and Africa and Ethiopia. And I recall one day trying to teach Paulu about how Africans built the pyramids. And he entertained me and he laughed. It wasn't until years later that I realized that he was actually really close friends with Joseph Ben Yakinen. And here I was trying to teach him about Ben Yakinen's books. Um, but he, he, he gave me a pass, but he was that kind of person. Um, you know, he convinced me to come hang out with him on a regular basis, which I would do. Um, sometimes I would listen to him, driving places. He would point out locations in the island where the UNIA had a bakery, for example. Talked about political struggle. He knew everybody. And he always asked, what's your plan? You know, you have all this content. You have all these ideas of African history. You're going to go back to Africa and just teach history? Like, what are you going to do? You know, what skill sets do you bring to the discussion? Like, what what are you actually trying to do with history? Um, so, and and that was a really important time period. He was trying to write an autobiography, and so myself and a number of others, young Black Bermudians, we helped him in, in various ways. And I speak of that in the book. But he created a really inclusive space for us to grow. And what I mean by that is, you know, we were we would go down to his house and he would be knitting sweaters and making us ginger beer. He had a bottle of clothes that he would soak for weeks. And he was this very masculine person, but he had these really, you know, sensitive ways of engagement where he would tell us how he cooked for CLI James. He made him ackee and soulfish. Um, and he just created a space where, you know, young people, you know, men and women, 
young adults, teenagers, older persons would show up and just just have political education without realizing what it was. Because the political education came with nice music, delicious beverages, and food. And here's this, you know, once again, really masculine male knitting sweaters as is teaching us about political revolution. It was a special, a special, a special space uh, for me. I mean, it's incredible. It sounds like uh, your experience of him was as though he was an elder. I mean, he is an elder um, to to you and your and your political development. And one of the things that I really that I noted from the book was the name of his um, his autobiography, which is called Me One, um, and which is a colloquialism, at least in. Uh, and and I'm, my parents are uh, Jamaican, and so I grew up within uh, Afro-Jamaican Caribbean culture. And so, um, yeah, me one uh, resonated with me in a new way uh, reading this book because, um, as you just said, um, Paulu like always pushed you to think about what uh, you needed to do with history. Um, and when he names his book me one, it's like, how can I one, how can me myself just, you know, fix all of these problems with the world or, or work to address all of these, uh, world historical inequities. Um, and yeah. And so I just thought it was a really, uh, is a different way of putting, uh, that phrase that I've heard in other contexts into this broader, uh, way of thinking about, you know, the work that we do as scholars and the urgency of it. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think that's a, that's a great point. I actually heard uh, there was a Mavado song, uh, <laughs> I think a few years ago, where he used the phrase "me one." And every time I heard that, I smiled because yeah, the way Paulo defined that was, you know, sign him up. If there's work to be done to, to help a community, sign him up. But what's really striking is that he didn't really talk a lot about himself. Like he didn't. You had to really pull it out of him. Uh, the autobiography was actually some 30 to 40 years in the making. That's how long it actually took. Uh, went from cassette tapes to transcriptions. And a lot of the stories he would tell us, I, bel- I, I, I never thought that he was fabricating the stories but I was not ready to believe all of the stories, if you know what I mean. For example, you know, he told us the story repeatedly of how he was deported from Wanawatu, which is a small, was a small political condominium in Oceania, and how a community drove their cars on the tarmac in defense of him to prevent the plane from leaving. And once again, I didn't think he fabricated the story I just didn't know how I could even actually repeat the story with any sense of confidence. And so part of the book was trying to also map out some of these stories. And I was exhilarated when I was able to do that um, in several, several occurrences. I mean, he really lived an amazing, tremendous life. And at the same time, his energy of we should give to the community shouldn't just be about the individuals also encouraged me to not write, 
you know, a big man book centered on just one person, which is why I tried to focus on the communities that he worked with as opposed to just himself. That was very intentional. And also a framing that I thought he might and those communities might appreciate because he was very keen about how he learned his skill sets from other people in the community. He was very clear about that, whether it was his grandmother who taught him how to, to um, make the beverages he gave us, his mother who taught him how to knit, his father who showed him how to be a mason working in quarries. He was very clear about his skill sets came from other people. His ideas were not his own and we should share our ideas. Right. Um, and yeah, to kind of go deeper into that, uh, it's very clear that uh, Paolo takes you on a journey um, through doing the through doing the research and writing of this book. Um, and so, to achieve the broad scope that this manuscript has, um, I noticed that you not only had to take your mind, but you had to take your body on many journeys throughout Oceania, Oceania, um, the Caribbean, and Africa. Um, what was it like to do research and interviews across these places and uh, find the communities that um, uh, Camaraca Fago had uh, influenced and had been influenced by? And also, just another note, a question about writing. Um, you and I always talk about music and reggae tunes. Um, what soundscapes inflected your writing process during the creation of this book? Oh, that is a great question. I think I'll answer the last question first. Sure. Um, well, it, it was it was a it was a beautiful challenge, a beautiful challenge. Uh, Paulo was always fighting against colonialism wherever he went. He was he always would lean towards what appeared to me the most revolutionary, the most the hubs of resistance. That's what Paulo gravitated towards. And so I soon realized to find out his narratives go to <laughs> the most radical spaces. <laughs> go to the radical archives, go to the radical communities, and I'll probably find his legacy. Um, so, so part of that took me to Papua New Guinea, Manawatu, Australia, and Fiji, all places he lived, loved, and spent serious time in. And, you know, the, the, the soundtrack for at least that part of the journey, which was about two to three months, Without question was Sizzler Kalungi's album, Born a King. Without question. Um, you know, I had this tiny little mobile phone and I, had only, I was only able to download, you know, a small selection of music, but I had that album. And I spent a lot of time walking at night alone, waiting for buses, backpack on, long days in archives, train rides. So that album from back to front, I play it over and over again. And it inspired me. And even today, when I hear songs from that album, I literally get chills because it, it takes me right back to that space. And it's a reminder of how difficult the journey was at times. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, Paolo, 
you know, one of his first episodes is in Cuba where he visits an uncle and he gets involved in anti-Batista demonstrations. He's shot in the leg. He survives. Um, this is before he goes to college in the United States. He first goes to NYU. He's kicked out of NYU because he was denouncing a racist professor's views about black culture, African-American culture in the South and segregation. He's encouraged to go to South Carolina State in Orangeburg, where he gets involved in a really vicious collaborative fight that included students from Claflin and South Carolina State, the NAACP, sharecroppers, uh, icons like Septima Clark, who he meets. She works with a group of students, including himself, who were kicked out of South Carolina State, Carolina State. Uh, activists like Majeska Simpkins, a ton of grassroots NAACP activists whose names aren't as popular, but they should be. So I was trying to find these narratives. So I was able to find people in South Carolina um, that knew him. Uh, he worked with a community in a place called Ellery in South Carolina. I traveled there. That was a really striking experience. Um, some archives I couldn't get to. He also, he lived in Liberia. I was about to go to Liberia. The Ebola crisis hit. That went out the window. He spent time in Kenya as an activist. He also worked with Jomo Kenyatta's emerging government. He actually had to flee Liberia. And so he ends up in Ghana, Nkrumah's Ghana. And Nkrumah, he knew Nkrumah through his connection with C.L.R. James. Uh, C.L.R. James had stayed at his home in Bermuda, so he knew him you know, as a, as a child. So in, in Kenya, he, he, res, he ends up residing for some time. So I, I went to Kenya, spent time in Nairobi, trying to piece together his work. He was part of a community of a group of repatriates from the Americas, African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans who went back to Kenya. There's a lot of attention around, you know, black persons who return to places like Ghana, Tanzania. Kenya's another one of these spaces. He meets Malcolm X in Kenya. And that was an amazing moment for me um, once again, he told us a lot of these stories, but finding the archival trail to confirm some of these stories was enlightening. And some of these spaces, you know, were clearly from the files of FBI, who I had to file the FOIA request for. They had over 2,000 documents on Paolo. To this day, I haven't received all of those. I was able to locate a ton of material through the U.S. State Department. CIA had a ton of materials, or significant materials. And actually, the CIA surveillance of Malcolm X in Kenya actually confirmed some of the stories Paolo told us about his time in Kenya, in Nairobi. Um, that being said, you know, going to Oceania, um, 
I was hoping to sail to Wanawatu from Fiji. I'm in a boat. The long, short part of the story is the boat breaks down. Uh, it was myself and an Australian captain just sailing around Fiji for what I felt was a little too long, three to four days. I end up at a place, an island, rather a marina rather, known as First Landing. I get off the boat. Uh, the community members look like me and they're surprised. Like, hey, where'd you come from? I don't know. I don't even know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I really don't. I, and at this point, I'm not sure where I'm going. I know I'm trying to get to Wanawatu. I know Wanawatu is technically west of Fiji. But I don't know if this boat is going to take me there. Because the boat has issues. I leave the captain, say, hey, captain, it's been great. Um, but I have another plan. There has to be an airport somewhere. But in that moment, this community says, I said, what's first landing? You know, that's a really striking name. And the response was, well, this is where our first ancestors landed from Africa, from Tanzania. And that's when I knew I had a bigger story. So I was still trying to find Paolo's journey, like why is he part of these anti-colonial movements in the Pacific? But at the same time, I was already thinking more broadly about Pacific connections with the black world beyond just, you know, my lane. So the research for this book actually was the research for more than one project at the same time. Right. Whew. Um, it's truly, truly fascinating. I think that there's there's nothing like uh, it's archives will tell you one thing, but when you walk around in the in the physical spaces of of where, um, you know, the people that you're studying um, or even just, you know, your elders and people that you respect have have walked, traveled and tra traversed. It's a there's just I don't know how to describe it. There's just a different feeling that you have and the different outlook you have on the work, I feel like once you've done that. And it's clear that you've had many of those experiences um, in doing the research for this book. Yes, and I would just add, uh, I'll just throw in, there were fishing boats, there were eight seat prop planes with duct tape around the planes. There were, you know, hills that I fell down, uh, coconut fields that we landed in. There were actually landing strips um, there were so many spaces outside of, of the actual mapping of the research that were really transformative, profoundly transformative. You know, I was able to see communities, for example, in, in Wanawatu dealing with rising sea levels and those, and those challenges. Um, you know, you were able to see tanks and warships left from World War II. You know, these great signs of environmental disasters. Uh, Paulu built his claim to fame was the building of water tanks and you know homes from bamboo. You could sometimes I would still I could find some of these things he built. So you know just the experience of of different patois, um, different languages, village languages, the village as a place of knowledge and cultural transformation. Solar power was a tremendous deal. Um, yeah, it, it was really an enlightening experience. And for someone who has spent much of my time, 
you know, writing about the African diaspora in Latin America and the Caribbean, it was transformative to, to engage a black world of Oceania mm-hmm. that really has changed how I, I see the diaspora in many ways. Yeah. And it actually makes me think of, um, you know, you you had this set of experiences in the 21st century doing this research, but for uh, uh, Paolo to to also transverse these spaces in a different period, in a different time with different technologies um, must have also been a tremendous feat. Um, yeah, I want to kind of uh, go deeper into uh, Kamaraka Fago and his upbringing in the Caribbean and North America. Um, how did he come into an understanding? What were some moments when he came into an understanding of anti-Black racism, uh, exploitation, and the possibilities of Black resistance in some of these early years? That's a great question. He was born in the, the early 1930s in Bermuda. Uh, his father and mother are from Nevis and St. Kitts, and they were part of a migration stream of West Indians from Nevis and St. Kitts who come to Bermuda circa 1900 to work and build what's known as the Bermuda, the dockyard, which was at the time supposed to be a state-of-the-art um, installation that the, the British considered would be how they would police the empire in the Americas through this dockyard. More like a think of a, a giant like a bus depot, a giant bus depot for ships. Um, you know, because Bermuda's a small space, so you get the impression, how could something be so major in a small space? But it, it's a depot. You know, ships come and they, and they go. But they were part of this this movement of, of West Indians who come to the island who are laborers, but they bring their own ideas. They bring popular culture. Uh, for example, there's a one of Bermuda's strongest, I guess, visible um, signs of African culture and the transformation of African culture is a gumbe culture, sometimes known as junk canoe, for example, in Jamaica. Um, but in, in Bermuda, gumbe was really driving force, but this community from Nevis and the kids also brought their versions of gumbays that, that merged with Bermudas. So Paulu talks about his father being a gumbe, his father being a, a laborer. His father was also really strident in resisting racism. So he has these personal stories of his father's engagements with usually with white men. <laughs> and they usually, you know, they usually go something like this. You know, there's, there's some version of this. Um, Father's doing A, B, C, or D, minding his own business. White man shows up, gives father trouble. Father fights white man who runs away. Paulo sees it and says, I'll do that when I get older. That's that's in a nutshell, you know, this, this constant thing. When challenged with white racism, you fight it. You, you fight it. You don't let it. It has no place. Uh, so Paulo gets into a number of fights as a child, um, usually on the workplace. So, you know, there's one case is working in a hotel. Um, he bends over to pick up something. 
His manager kicks him in the backside, or his white manager, I should say. He throws his manager into, you know, a glass cabinet and gets fired. Goes home, tells his father what happened. His father says that was good. So this is Camarcafigo's first, and his, and his family, they're Garveyites. They're very much Garveyites. Uh, the UNIA has a big impact on Bermuda. The invasion, Italy's invasion of Ethiopia is galvanizing black Bermuda. So this is the fabric that is, is, is born into. It's born into you know, a black community that's trying to figure out its place in an imperial society that's reaching towards Africa, but also in a very segregated community. Uh, so Paulo is and also and also a community that uses its hands. As mentioned, his father's a laborer. His mother is a um she knits, she sews. His grandmother grows all kind of plants and herbs from cassava to arrowroot. So all these things make up his make up his political fabric as a really young, young person. It's directly from his parents. Yeah. And so, yeah, you spoke in a little bit about uh, his political education. And, and we know that eventually he comes to the U.S. Um, and uh, he becomes a student activist. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, those experience and, and experiences and the people that he encountered, some of his mentors, many of whom were, were women, and how they kind of shaped his his consciousness when he was in the U.S. Well, that, that's a what's interesting is that and one of the one of the approaches to the book was at least initially conceived. I think I was being very ambitious was to try to make a a unique, I guess, the radical um, intervention in how we see the African diaspora in each chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like my idea was, even if a reader only reads one chapter, they should get something transformative about some concept of the black world. That was mm-hmm. the intent. Mm-hmm. Um, things change over time, <laughs> but there's still fragments of that. <laughs> no, that's in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that uh, because what I wanted to show is that the narrative is. That you know, one of the older narratives is that persons from the Caribbean come into the United States and they become radicalized, or they come to Harlem and they're blown by this internationalist world of black people, uh, whether it's music, dance, political views, culture, and all of that. All of that is true. But what I wanted to kind of get at is is what were the Caribbean spaces that also were cosmopolitan in terms of the black world that would, 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 would that folks like Paolo might have engaged before they came to the United States. So for example, his family being in Bermuda is important, but the migration, um, the migration includes a, a, out of most of the workers or laborers in Bermuda to build the dockyard, the majority are, without question, from St. Kitts, which goes against how we usually see West Indian migration. It's the Panama Canal, it's 
Barbadians, the Jamaicans, other groups. But in a space like Bermuda, there are groups like folks from St. Kitts and also folks from Saba, which is a tiny Dutch colony. Uh, but they're like the third largest percentage of these laborers that come to Bermuda. And so with Bermuda being a small space, a small community like Saba actually can have a big cultural impact among those laborers, despite the size of the island itself. And in a space like Bermuda, it actually becomes the big world. It's, it's, it's the big city in some ways because Saba is only five square miles. So I was trying to get some sense of these connections and Paolo's time in Cuba is really significant because it's in Cuba where he learns to dance, son, um, you know, he learns to, he learns different, you know, Afro-Cuban musical traditions. Um, when it's shot in the leg, there's a Afro-Cuban woman who saves him, hides him in his home. Uh, when he gets to New York, you know, he spends a lot of time at places like the Savoy, nightclubs, where he's dancing. But a lot of the, 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 he already knows this. Like he came from a Calypso background in Bermuda. Um, now he's in New York, but his, this familiarity of all the, you know, these various Afro-Caribbean musical traditions he's already experienced in a space like Cuba. Um, I've seen in Baptist church. He runs into CLR James. So he's a student activist, but he's very much part of this cultural fabric of what would be Harlem, although he actually lives um, he lives in New Jersey, but travels to New York because there's a West Indian community in New Jersey that he's a part of that's often not talked about enough. When we think of the nine, you know, the, the pre World War II period of, of West Indian migration to the United States. Um, but there's a lot of activity. Bermuda, for example, and I, ha I have to, I have to do this, um, <laughs> because it's Bermuda, uh, Bermuda's had a traveling cricket team that <laughs> at the time was the team to beat in New York. Mm -hmm. um, they dominated the scene. They had leagues. They played in leagues as far north as Boston, Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York. They're doing very Bermudian things. They're playing Yucca, which is an important card game. There are leagues up and down the East Coast. And Paulo is part of this, this, this community as well. And I, I was trying to touch on that to some extent. But I mentioned he's kicked out of NYU. Um, he meets a, a teacher who actually is, she's, she was working on her master's degree in education at NYU. And she also taught home economics at South Carolina State. Her name is Maddie Peggs. She convinces him to go to South Carolina State College. Because it's an HBCU, he might have a better time there. While at South Carolina State College, you know, I, I mentioned he's involved in this student protest where they join in a boycott led by the NAACP and sharecroppers against white citizen councils. And it's been like Septima Clark who at the forefront in advising these students, helping them organize. It's people like Majeska Simpkins, which are put, who are putting pressure on the NAACP to actually give them more resources. And, and it's a phenomenal episode. It takes place circa 5th, 1954 
1955 that ironically, as I worked on this story, there's a lot of attention and rightly so around the Orange Bar Massacre uh, that, that's popularly remembered. But this collective brought, you know, protests of 54-55 is relatively invisible in the narrative of South Carolina's freedom struggle. And women like Seth McClark at the forefront, uh, the fire from the jobs, uh, Majeska Simpkins' home is shot at repeatedly. But there's also a number of striking figures. You know, Paulo told us about the Klan burning crosses on the campus and being being attacked by the Klan. There's an episode where he he told us that you know the students armed themselves. And as I was writing that section, to go back to the soundtrack, <laughs> there's a Beanie Man song. Uh, Memories don't live like people do. He, they always remember you. Whether things are good or bad, it's just the memories that we have. And this song was a, a dance old clash of Bounty Killer in the 90s, but it was part of my theoretical framework for this chapter because I was trying to reconcile Paolo's memories that didn't match up with what I could not find in the archive. And so the, the, the voice I heard a lot was, memories don't live like people do. So... We shouldn't expect the memory to exist in the archive, you know, in the same way. So I tried to tell a story of armed struggle, armed self-defense, and there was a lot that I found. Um, some things just didn't happen exactly the way Paula remembered it. But there was a minister named Joseph Delane whose house was shut up by the Klan. He fired back, said he shot in the name of Jesus. He put one of the Klansmen in the hospital. The governor of South Carolina filed a warrant for his arrest. He escaped state to New York. Paulo was part of this fabric of, of exactly, and he and so he's learning these radical lessons in South Carolina. He's gonna and he's gonna take these lessons once he leaves. As a matter of fact, he would tell stories of of this experience. Him being shot in Cuba and the Klan and a rope around his neck. He would tell these stories even as far as Australia. The stories lived. The memories lived and traveled across the world as part of his framing of a black power activist. And they were very important to his consciousness. So his, his time as a student activist is critical. It's critical to his worldview. Right. Yeah. And just, I mean, within, within these narratives, there's so many, um, there are so many uh, episodes of violence um, that, you know, pa uh, Paolo, ex Paolo, Paolo, Paolo experiences against, um, you know, his himself and his own body. And he's Indeed. and he's a witness to a lot of anti-black violence as well, which Indeed. also provides a, a backdrop for some of this. Um, let's turn next to uh, uh, Paolo's first trip to the continent um, mm. in the early 1960s. Um, this is during the critical moment of decolonization, uh, discussions of sustainability, universal suffrage, and African liberation. Um, and similar moments are happening throughout the diaspora in the United States with the student sit-in movement, um, universal voting in the Caribbean. Um, so it's a period of tremendous possibility globally. Um, 
Can you tell us about some of Kama Rockefago's encounters in East and West Africa and how you see the liberation energies that emanate from these encounters as being more of a cosmic illustration of black radical of radical black diaspora, which is a term that uh, you describe in the book. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, Paulo, he he knew as a young person that his family, his family from his father's side, came from uh, West Africa in Liberia. His aunt Maddie, who actually lived in New York and traveled back and forth to Liberia, was also a major influence on how he thought of Africa. Apparently, she taught him phrases, uh, indigenous Liberian languages. His father had traveled back, apparently. So he always he had he had a positive image of Africa. And so after his acts who politely leave. South Carolina State College. And Septima Clark was really alarmed, um, not only by the fact that students were expelled, but that the NAACP didn't support these students like she felt they should. He ends up at uh, California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California, where he would also meet Malcolm X for the first time and he would play cricket with other black persons from the colonial empire, including uh, Kenyan students who would be important because this would be part of his network when he travels to Africa. Um, he gets married in this time period and his wife happened to also be a descendant of uh, the Tubman family who were a major political, part of the political elite of Liberia. And the president at the time was William Tubman. So he leaves Caltech and his wife decided that they wanted to go back to Liberia. She had more of a connection than he did. So they linger for a while. Eventually they find jobs at a college called Cotterton College which was a Christian college outside of Monrovia, but it was kind of the place where he could work on, he starts to work on ecological projects. This is where he first starts to design water tanks. Um, he's experimenting with sustainability, even though at the time, that's not the catchphrase, but sustainable development is thinking through. But in Bermuda, What's also in, in, in developing is a major push for universal adult suffrage. So in between his time in Liberia, he travels back to Bermuda and gets involved in this political struggle. His father also passes away. So this is a, this is a really important moment for him. Um, in Bermuda, he gets involved in this movement, which actually isn't immediately successful, but this was a striking time for me because there's not enough attention really about this moment in Bermuda, but Cameron Cafego is remembered for his, his involvement, but the story hadn't really been unpacked. And I felt it was important to try to do so. 
the soundtrack of this movie is Calypso. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm always trying to, you know, that's 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 one of my one of my my methods. Um and he returns to Liberia, but he always has this notion of once again, we gotta have to be transformative. Liberia, there's promise, but there's also frustration. It's an independent country, but it's not, the country isn't totally liberated. There are class issues, there are ethnic issues. Uh, Patrice Lumumba's assassination takes place. And there were students at Cotentin, a group of students who actually were from East Africa, from what would now be Tanzania, they had joined now with, with 1958, 1961. It's a time period. Um, Pan-Africanism is sweeping the continent. Largely through, I should say, partly through the work of Kwame Nkrumah and how he was trying to transform Ghana into, you know, a beacon, a, a place of refuge for the black world. And so... Ghana hosts a number of Pan-African conferences. This core of Tanzanian students attend one of these conferences. It's an All-African Students Conference. They go to an All-African People's Conference, which folks like Franz Fanon are present. But they come to Cottington with these ideas of Pan-Africanism. They want to build a, they want to start a political movement. And once again, the memory piece was interesting because this is where Paulo also gets his name, Paulo Cameron Fago, because his born Roosevelt Nelson Brown, he says his renamed Paulo Cameron Fago by an elder in a village where his family came from. Um, but what it's clear that when he returns to Bermuda from Liberia, he is now referred to as Paulo Camacafago. That much is clear. So he has this awakening, but he also seems to get involved with this group of students where they call for political struggle, a revolution, uh, they're protesting on campus. He gets involved with a group of Ghanaian uh, activists, labor activists who are charged of being communists. They have to flee the country. He ends up in Nkrumah's Ghana. In Ghana, he runs into W.B. Du Bois, Charlie Graham Du Bois. Crewman tells him, you should keep going to Kenya, which he does. And as I mentioned earlier, in Kenya, he's, he now actually works more closely uh, with the University of East Africa, doing biology, ecology, the notion of transforming science from a, a colonized version, at least a at least science as a, as a colonial versions of science in the school curriculum, the Kenyatta government was trying to transform um, the curricula to be more African-centered. So Cameron Configure was a part of this process is his learning about, or he's able to see how the question of science can actually be critical for African liberation struggles. And um, this is where he's, that at the same time, what's taking place in the Americas is the emergence of the Black Power Movement. So Cameron Cafego is going to return 
to Bermuda, right in the heart of the Black Palm movement, is still relatively young, but like like a, like a James Foreman, he brings a he brings a, a, a worth of a, a wealth of experience to a younger generation of Black Power activists that's really informed by his time in Africa, uh, the pitfalls and the promises. So he doesn't have a, a, a overglorified view of Africa. He has a, a more, I would say, a more realistic view of this is going to be a long-term political struggle. And we can't win. Black power is not just about slogans. Right. It's also yeah. about work and energy sources and, and those kind of those kind of things. Yeah, it's like peeling back some of the romanticism. Um, and, yeah, thinking about black power as uh, like something that needs to be, well, you write here like battle tested. <laughs> um, so it's like, uh, let's just talk about black power in the Caribbean. Um, and you've, you've alluded to it, but um, what's at stake in this context where um, the press, you write that the oppressors aren't white, but Afro-Saxon. <laughs> and if you can explain, you can explain what you mean by that. I know what you mean by that, but well, that was, was actually it, was that Kamaraka Fago. He said that. Well, I mean, he would say it, but it's being said by by many, um, you know, black power activists. That maybe a there, there are a lot of folks saying that. For example, Obi Buna, who was Nigerian, who's the founder of um, the Black Panther Party in London, actually uses that phrase. Um, that's a very popular phrase, even in Black power groups in the UK. In that, in, in the Caribbean, we're dealing with heads of state that are Black. And it's, it challenges the notion of a country with Black political leadership, Black lawyers, doctors, even the police means black power. Um, according to Egbuna and, and other observers, you know, maybe it's a it's a it's it's a white country with black people in it. Now there's maybe a little callous, but what they were trying to get at and what black power was saying was that in the Caribbean a class analysis is critical. Um, but this is not just something that's been said in the Caribbean. It also reflects the realities of Africa. But also in the United States, you know, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, and Charles Hamilton's Black Power, they talk about Black people in the United States forming a colony or being a domestic colony. So the discussion of colonialism and, you know, replacing a colonial system with Black elites to run that colonial system of that not being Black Power or not being liberation, this is clearly at the forefront of the Caribbean, without question. Um, in the Caribbean, in the case of a space like Trinidad and Guyana, you have large East Indian populations. So in a context where you may have exploited, or there may be other persons of color exploited, where do they fit in the dynamic of black power? And while that question may be relative in other spaces, black power advocates don't have to deal with them in the same way as they would in the Trinidad. Guyana. It's at the forefront. The question of Black political leadership who control a political apparatus, a military apparatus that might suppress the Black Power movement 
is much a bigger question in the Caribbean because it's majority black. And so what black power is in the Caribbean, it's it's black power is trying to, and I, I say this in a few places, is trying to um, achieve the unfulfilled promises of political independence. It, it wants the whole thing. You know, black power says the school system should reflect us as African people. And what's at stake is that if we, if we don't look at black power in spaces like the Caribbean or Africa, my summation is we don't have a full picture of what it means globally. If we only understand or seek to understand black power from the context of the United States, there are some of these other dynamics that we actually miss. Um, for example, we miss that the suppression of black power is not simply J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. It's the British government's foreign and commonwealth organization that is actually providing surveillance to these local black governments in the Caribbean, even though they're independent, as in the case of Barbados. It's the French government. It's the Australian government, right? It's it's so there's a, there's a much there's a much broader story, so narratives. Uh, the notion of black power being simply, or that the fight being the cultural nationalists versus political nationalists, i.e., the US movement as opposed to the Black Panther Party, United States is not the same in the Caribbean. Uh, there were more overlaps with culture and, and political nationalism. And there are a ton of contradictions. You know, Walter Rodney, one of the driving Black Power activists of Guyana, you know, it's very possible that his assassination was at the hands of Forbes Burnham, who was actively using Black Power vocabulary to support uh, his control of Guyana. And he was extremely shrewd about it. And I, I write about how, you know, he denounced that he he critiqued other black heads of state, uh, like Hugh Shearer of Jamaica, who bans Walter Rodney from the island, uh, Eric Williams, who tries to shut down you know, the major black power revolutions, and his response behind closed doors to those very same elites were, this would never happen in Guyana. He's like, I don't, I don't ban black power activists from Guyana. I let them in, and once they're here, I control them. Like he was actively investing in black power groups as long as they asserted cultural nationalism. Uh, Yusuf Kuyana, a major and brilliant black power organizer in Guyana, he makes him part of his government structure. But this was a pattern that he used to control black power. So you know, understand how black power is being controlled. Um, the fact that black power is in places like Curacao, uh, the you know the lingua franca of black power is it's in Martinique, so it's in these other creoles. It, it's 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 beyond the anglophone framing of it. Um, all of that we lose if we if we don't look at the Caribbean, and if we don't look at South America, places like Colombia or Venezuela, that had their own versions of the black power movement. And I would admit, even in even though I spent some two chapters on black power in the Caribbean. It's not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, when we think of the Gary Funa and their engagements with, with the Black Palm movement, I, I write about I write about some of those kind of elements. There's so much, there's right. so much there to unpack. Right. 
And sort of as a part of that, uh, one thing I, I noticed and that you argue is the Black Power Conferences outside of the U.S. Um, actually are not something that I knew much about. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about uh, these conferences, how they become these new nodes of Black Power throughout the Caribbean, um, and what they reveal about networks of organizing and surveillance. Yeah, well, and this is um, this is something I spent more time on, at least Bermuda's Black Power Conference of 1969. I spent a lot of time on in my first book, which was centered on Black Power in Bermuda, and it was it was an eye opener um, to me. Um, Paolo returns from Kenya. He meets Malcolm X, as mentioned in Kenya, and Malcolm. Upon it, and this is during Malcolm's second trip to Africa. He's back in the United States, and he talks to a number of civil rights leaders about you know this guy from the Caribbean, from Bermuda, who's doing work. He's doing amazing work in Kenya, and Paulu travels to a 1968 Black Power Conference in Philadelphia. And he meets these leaders, his acts to speak. He talks about the need for Black Power conferences to take place outside of the United States, which leads to the conference in Bermuda in 1969. And part of the, the, one of the contributions I was trying to make to the field was, you know, these Black Power conferences tend to get, tend to have a bad reputation in scholarship. Um, you know, scholars usually say folks talked a lot, shouted, and then went home. Um, nothing got done. Nothing came out of it. And I think that that approach to me is really problematic. Um, because it's, I think it's more important to not just look at a conference that might span two or three days, but look at the months or maybe years that it takes to organize one of these conferences. And if you extend the lens, then you get to see these networks are organizing. Uh, you get a better framework of surveillance. And you also get to see, to use your, your, your phrase of what was at stake. Um, what's decided to be a part of the conference and what's not. What themes are important, what themes might have been important, but don't make it to the final printing of the flyer. All these things we get only when we step back. Um, so that was kind of my approach. So the the Black Power Conference in Bermuda, it's 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 a phenomenal moment. It's a critical moment. It's supposed to signify the emergence of black power in the Caribbean. All the black power is already in the Caribbean. Uh Paolo invites a cross range of activists from Queen Mother Moore, uh, women like Flo Kennedy. Um, I mentioned Yovit Benyakinen, CLR James, a keynote speaker, folks like Walter Rodney, um, Milana Karanga. But in doing so, he's immediately placed under intense surveillance by Bermuda's local government, by the British government, the US government, and the Canadian government, who collaboratively work 
to sabotage this conference in various ways. For example, the United States government and Bermuda government collaborated to create stop lists to prevent activists from entering Bermuda. Bermuda changes its immigration laws, which say for the first time, person need passports to enter. Uh, the British and the Canadian government bringing warships to the island um, just in case something happens. The local government passed laws that's, they passed a race relations bill that's patterned on Britain's own race relations bill that make it a criminal offense to verbally uh, discriminate. But in other words, if you verbally say racist phrases, it's a criminal offense. So, so just imagine at a Black Power conference, you know, white folks are going to be called all kinds of names. That's a criminal offense, as opposed to a civil offense if there's discrimination through housing. You know, these more structural things are just were civil defenses or civil offenses. And so collaboratively, they created this this matrix of um, this matrix of white internationalism create a ton of of structures to suppress this movement. And you know, this is what Black Power was fighting against. How how do you fight against that? And so in, in seeing some of these documents, in seeing and Paulo once again had talked about this ships being brought to the shores and in looking at you know british colonial documents you know they stated that they would have ships you know they'll fake a malfunction and have the ships off the coast now canada is never really publicly revealed for that but canada also did did the same and so what happens is a number of activists don't make it to bermuda but the, the voice of black power travels far and wide. So, and maybe we'll pick up on this when we talk about Oceania, but activists from Oceania heard about this black power conference. Paulo also mentions that they're going to have a subsequent conference in Barbados the next year. And so activists from Oceania want to go to Barbados. Barbados is the, is the talk of black power in 1970 as a follow-up. Which also doesn't take place, and due to the same state forces, this translates to this becomes the Congress of African Peoples that takes place in Atlanta in 1970, which we could also talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Let's. I definitely want to get to Black Power um, in Oceania. Um, the. Uh, the chapter that you have Aborigine, not Puerto Rican. Um, I see that as adding texture, but also complicating um, a U.S. Black power Aboriginal relationship that Rhonda Williams describes in her book, Concrete Demands. Can you tell us more about your analysis of the relationships between uh, Black power activists in the Caribbean and the U.S., this global kind of like Black power activism that you're seeing or that you're describing emerge um, and Aboriginal activists, and perhaps how they even converge at um, CAP at the at the conference. Yeah, uh, you know, great question. So, 
I mentioned Paulo, he makes mention in the media of a subsequent Black Power Conference. And that's going to take place in Barbados. There's a core of activists in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Bob Mazza, Patricia Korowa, and Bruce McGinnis, who were young leaders in a group called the Aborigines Advancement League. And they send a telegram to Paolo asking him to come to Australia to help them in their emerging Black Power movement. Meanwhile, uh, Paolo at the Black Power Conference in Bermuda, they also decided that they should, it was time, in conversation with CLR James, in the aftermath of the conference, once again, this is another discussion during the conference. After the conference, James stays in the island and him and Paolo decide that maybe they should have a sixth Pan-African Congress. Congress. Uh, given the fifth had not taken place, had taken place in Manchester, England in 1945. So James says to Paolo, well, if you want to do that, you need to go talk to the old man. The old man is Kwame Nkrumah, who at the time is exiled in Guinea. Um, so, and this, this also became another, for me, another theoretical intervention that Nkrumah in Guinea is communicating with black political leaders across the world. Uh, he writes letters and folks write letters to him. There were flirtations with Shirley Grand Du Bois, which I found really fascinating. It seemed to have some interest politically and otherwise. Um, you know, he gets letters from uh, all kind of persons acting for support from India to United, from United States. Obiak Boone, who I mentioned, founds the Black Panther Party in London, actually travels to see Nkrumah. And he records this amazing speech, which becomes known as Message to the Black People of Britain in Nkrumah's pamphlet, The Spectre of Black Power. Um, but to, to hear the voice of Nkrumah and Egbuna talk about Black Power in the UK and what it meant was phenomenal. Those archives can be found at Howard University this morning, Spring Um The point is <clears throat> the itinerary for Paulu is, okay, there's a group in Australia that want me to come help them. But I need to go talk to the old man. And we could talk about that framing, but that's the language that they're using. He goes to see Nkrumah. Um, and he tells Nkrumah, you know, I heard from this group in, in Australia, we're gonna have a Black Power Conference. You also want to have a six-pack. And Krumah says, it sounds great. I'll endorse it. But you should have it in Tanzania. So you should go talk to Uniri. So Paulu travels to Tanzania. Uh, in Uniri, this is now this is 1970. Six-pack doesn't take place until 74. So once again, if we just look at six-pack from the summer of 1974, of the weeks it occurs, we, we miss 
this entire, this years of organizing that takes place. And there's the international stories behind what is about to happen. Uh, so from Tanzania, Paolo continues to Australia. He goes to Mauritius. And now we've left the Black Atlantic. You know, we, we're having these, these Pan-African discussions, but we have left the Atlantic. Uh, we're now in the Indian Ocean. He's on his way via the Indian Ocean to Australia. These activists get a telegram from him. They go around suspiciously, uh, I believe from Kenya. They're like, who do we know in, in Kenya? We don't know anybody in Kenya. Like, who could this possibly be? And they realize it's Roosevelt Brown. Meanwhile, they're under surveillance by, and you know much about this organization, uh, Australia's Security Intelligence Organization, which is the U.S., the Australian version of the FBI. They've placed the Aborigine Advancement League under surveillance. So they follow this group to the airport when they pick up Paolo. So the book has photographs of that moment. They take them to places like the Curry Club. Uh, him and Bob Marza hit it off really well. Uh, Patricia Corver, they they all have they all have admiration. It, it's a great, it's a really critical meeting. Uh, they have another meeting where Osio reports Paulu told this group once again the stories travel. Uh, he was shot in the leg in Cuba, and he fought against the Klan. They call him Stoked to Call Michael's lieutenant. And he's only in Australia for a short time. He gives a press conference on Black Power that lights a match publicly. Um, you know, the community wants to know who invited this, this Black Power person. And to hear, you know, Aboriginal activists and scholars like Gary Foley tell it, this was an important moment that put Black Power into the popular imagination of Australia, but also encouraged, you know, young Aboriginal activists to join the Black Power movement because it's being denounced by the state. And it's, it's those kind of intersections that and unexpected occurrences that take place. He returned, Paulo returns to the Americas, but he keeps in touch with the group, they actually come to Atlanta for CAP, but they had planned to go to um, Barbados. But in, in Atlanta, it was a diverse set of experiences. For example, Bruce McGinnis is in, in, in Atlanta, he looks like, you know, an average white person interested in black power. So his complexion is sometimes challenged. Patricia Corwa is actually not quote unquote Aborigine. She's actually a South Sea Islander who they descended from communities blackbirded or forcibly taken from Wanawatu in New Caledonia to Australia to work in cotton and sugar plantations. But in in Atlanta, she's Aborigine. Um but this, this contingent, it's a really important moment because 
They learn a lot about African-American culture, politics. They meet Black Panthers. They travel throughout the country. They go to Dartmouth. Um, they go, <laughs> They go all over the place. They're in Harlem. They meet Louis Farrakhan, Nation of Islam, Queen Mother Moore, uh, SNCC leaders. And it's it's such a phenomenal moment that and it's, it's an uneven process um, because there are five of them, but they each have these different interesting experiences. Patricia is, is inspired. The, the talk of going back to Africa inspires her to go back to her ancestral home at least in recent memory of Wanawatu. And once she arrives, she's placed under severe surveillance by the French and British governments. So there are these, you know, intersections with Atlanta that are broader. Um, Cap is remembered as a Murray Baraka who has a major impact on, on, the, on the movement or at Cap, but the road to Cap is and the road from Cap are so much broader. So, and, and this is what I was trying to tell. Um, and the surveillance around Cap, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The State Department has thousands of documents on this Congress, literally thousands of documents, layers of intelligence upon layers um, that I, I tried to unpack some of that inside, inside the chapter. But the, the short end of it is this this. Black Australian delegation took the ideas of CAP and the Black Palm movement to Australia, didn't simply mimic these ideas, but sought to actually make them relative to their own political struggles um, back home. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. Um, I, I appreciate the way that you are you're sharing how you're reading uh, a lot of these interactions. And I think it's just really, it's just really eye-opening for the future of how we do work in black internationalism. Um, let's discuss um, Wanawatu and, um, and perhaps Papua New Guinea at the same time if we can. <laughs> um, what did black power technology and science offer kind of uh, these decolonizing or places that are struggling for independence? What did it offer them in that regard? Uh, you know, re really, really interesting. It, it, it's, a, it's a fabulous experience. Uh, the, key, the key moment is the Sixth Pan-African Congress. Uh, after CAP, Paolo continues to organize for Six-Pack and part of his work is, if we're going to have a, a global black movement or conference, we have to have black people from Oceania. Because that area of the black world, they were not present in 1945. So in that, he meets, he travels to Papua New Guinea, to Wanawatu, Solomon Islands, and is trying to encourage political leaders from those spaces to send delegations. So... An organization known as the New Hebridean National Party sent a delegation to the Sixth Pan-African Congress. And as part of Paulu's work, Six Pack's focus was around science and technology. At least there was a stream of it. It had ideas to build a Pan-African center of technology and a drive to produce or create a broad global network of Pan-African scientists who would use the science and technology 
to help liberation struggles. The th thinking was, if Africa goes free, but isn't free from a science and energy standpoint, is that really liberation or is that just another form of colonization? This thinking is really important or, or is grasped by leaders from Wanawatu who are already trying to build or thinking through, when we have a nation, what will development look like? And they were already trying to build a new nation around self-reliance, which resonated with the communities who already came from a, they came from a system of self-reliance. And colonialism has severed some of these systems. So they saw Tanzania, they saw Naira's, you know, vocabulary around self-reliance to be something that they could operate or develop within Wanawatu. Uh, they asked Paolo and an activist named Jimmy Grant, who was of the Council of Central Black Education in DC, also had a major, played a major role in black studies and um, student protests in, in California. They invite them to Wanawatu to help conduct political education, but also help develop cadres with appropriate technology skills so that when these activists went to the rural villages, they didn't only take political ideas, they also took skills that could say, listen, we used to grow coconut for ourselves. Now we're buying coconut oil from the store. This is how we used to refine coconut oil. Let's go back to doing what we did before. You know, those kind of, let's make the sugar from the sugar cane, as opposed to just giving the sugar cane to the manufacturing company and then they sell it back to us. Um, this was the idea, this, this was the thrust. And so Paolo is doing that work when the British government, you know, saw that as a threat and have him deported from the island, which goes back to the, the beginning with the story of the plane. Um, in, in researching this process, I was able to actually find pictures of that plane and that day. Um, his deported from Wanawatu, he remarkably evades an FBI agent in the airport in California. He turns right back around, heads back to Fiji, where he meets activists like Vanessa Griffin and Claire Slater, who were Fijian uh, leaders of the Pacific Women's Movement and also the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement, which was denouncing nuclear testing in, in the region by France, other colonial powers. He cannot go, but he can't go back to Wanawatu uh, because it's still a political condominium. They, through their own networks, they get him established in Papua New Guinea, working for the government and it, its office of village development, where he's doing some of his rural work, but now he's actually being supported by a black government. And he actually thrives in that space. He writes a ton of manuals about, I mentioned the coconut oil, how to make soaps, uh, stuff from repair, from sewing machines, um, uh, just a, a wide range of, of ovens and, you know, at least how to use, how to make ovens, repair ovens, um, the hose from bamboo, the water tanks. He established these projects all across the country in some of the most rural spaces that I tried to travel to, but I didn't get too far. Um, 
But this is an important moment because the, the indictment becomes, why is it that someone of his caliber can be appreciated by a black government as far away from Bermuda as Oceania, but in Bermuda, Paulu can't even get a job because of the colonial state. Eventually, Wanawatu goes independent. He's allowed to go back to Wanawatu, and he continues some of his work for Wanawatu um, around the same the same dynamics around technology and appropriate technology, rather. And this takes him into the eighties. Right. Well, you. I want to kind of uh, linger on the. Uh, the statement or the name of the last chapter actually, which is environmental justice is the global agenda for Pan-Africanism. And you're kind of describing the ways in which uh, Paulus, um, uh, his environmental projects uh, kind of like lay the, they lay um, down a certain form of resistance that insulates from free trade capitalism. And, um, could like also insulate uh, countries from what will what's emerging at the time, which is it's going to be uh, neoliberalism and attendant neocolonialism. So I just um, well, yeah, I just want to meditate with you on that um, with regard to the last chapter. Yeah, um, you know, in, in some ways, this chapter for me was actually just that. I think that's a a really appropriate word, a meditation. Um, I was trying to historicize the moment of Paulu in the 80s and the 90s. Also, kind of try to demonstrate how in that moment, the world of Pan-Africanism and environmental justice, the networks are the same. Like a lot of the environmental justice activists are operating through the networks that Pan-Africanism developed or the Pan-African movement developed. So they overlap. Um, but I also was trying to actually encourage readers to envision the current world we're in and the, the joint imperative of Pan-Africanism and environmental justice. Uh, part of it was to demonstrate really, really, in, you know, intentionally that environmental justice is not something that, you know, is created by white society in the modern moment that environmental justice and ideas of the environment are part of a fabric of black consciousness that existed long before the phrase environmental justice. Uh, Paolo was raised in a society where, and this is, this is Bermuda and still to this day, where the roofs of homes are made from limestone. And the limestone is, is purifies the rainwater and the rainwater goes into our tanks. And that's where we get our main water. Some people have wells, but the water is the rainwater gets filtered through the roof. So there's a there's a there's a, a, a there's a ground zero of ecological sensitivity that Paulu has just by being in Bermuda. That's not gonna be defined as hey, I'm an environmentalist. It's like this is just part of regular daily culture. So Paolo was trying to actually do the similar work. So when he's talking about how to build homes from bamboo, he's using the roof structure 
and the water purification structure that it takes from Bermuda in Oceania. Um, in the 1980s, or actually 1970s, Paolo starts to work with in UNESCO and this Commission on Sustainable Development, which is an interesting body that thinkers of Black internationalism don't engage enough. Because in, in those spaces, you have a ton of Black engineers and scientists who meet on a regular basis and are actively trying to solve some of the ecological issues and energy issues of the Black world and the global self. So they're working on how do we create societies with renewable energy and how can this be used as for liberation? What does this mean for development? Is development, does it have to be capitalism? And they're, they're trying to actively address these concerns while dealing with the real climate change issues, for example, the rising of the sea levels, which is a big issue in the Caribbean, but also Oceania. So Paolo, having that sensitivity as, a, as an island person, is part of these global networks. Um, and he actually helps form a group, a network of, of small island development state, development states, developing states that are actively organized around rising sea levels. This is all throughout the 80s. He also organizes, was part of the 7th Pan-African Congress, which is another remarkable space. And they're actively talking about why environmental justice should be part of Pan-Africanism. It's on the table. Um, they're trying to talk more specifically about how colonialism impacted the spread of the desert, or how slavery, rather, impacted the certification. And why, if you think about reparations, there should be an agenda that includes renewable energy. And Paulo speaks on this in South Africa, um, uh, the, the, you know, the major conference in Durban against xenophobia, I believe 2001. He is there. So the, the notion of reparations and, and science and technology is very much an advocate of engaging that. And so for me, it was important to revisit that moment and to stress that, you know, these thinkers are part of these these broader Pan-African frameworks. It's not new. It doesn't, it doesn't fall, doesn't fall from the sky. I mean, the from the Maldives to Barbados to Wanawatu, um, you know, Kiribati, it's a lot of a number of these small islands who that are disappearing right now. They were they were decrying, you know, this issue in the 1980s and the 70s. But part of the agenda was we can't just wait in the developing world or the so-called developed world because we're not being listened to. What are some of the things that we can do as islands ourselves um, to ratify some of these issues, at least mitigate the impact? Right. Yeah, so, um, it, yeah, it seems like You've shown that, uh, yeah, environmental justice uh, within the Black diasporic world has always been the product of sustained and collective thinking and acting on this. And like you said, it's not something that just emerged yesterday. Um, and so we have so much to learn um, from uh, Paulu Kamaraka Fago. Um, and 
like, I wish we could spend more time talking about him. But before we go, I just want to ask you one more question about um, where, after having, after having written this book, um, where is your journey going now? Wow. Um, so I'm wrapping up a book that looks at Black internationalism in Oceania proper, or more, more broadly speaking, and just a brief snapshot. That book ranges primarily the 20th century, but shows, for example, how uh, West Papua, which is right now colonized by Indonesia, uh, was reached out and was supported by Senegal under Leopold Senghor in his fight against colonialism. Um, and also African-American and the ACP in the 1950s. Uh, it spans the nuclear-free independent Pacific movement in Fiji. Um, it spans activists like Kathleen Walker, who was a, a poet whose son actually forms Australia's Black Panther Party. But she's a global figure. She's working with Black communities. Or, or she finds herself in Black spaces across London. Um, United States as a poet and activist. She's also, you know, engaged in Palestinian liberation struggles. So that book is really about black internationalism and how it impacted Oceania and vice versa. So for example, when the icons of Pan-Africanism through uh people like from Marcus Garvey, Amy Jacks Garvey, what were the thinkers about the Pacific? Sheikh Antajop, for example, writes about Oceania. Um, and even those artists and outside, not artists, but organizers of the early 20th century and 19th, like, like Martin Delaney, for example, talks about Oceania. So it, it engages, you know, that, that broad scope. Um, secondly, I just testified in a, a, a Bermuda had an inquiry into historic land grabs in the island. I just finished a major project that looked at a black community that had its land taken for the building of a U.S. base in World War II. Um, that was, it was great to see my work have a potential having an impact on reparations for a contemporary black community. And yeah, I'm, I'm working on a book that looks at <laughs> looks at reggae music, dancehall, and song clash culture as a frame of Black internationalism. Um, so thank you for the questions about, about you know, music and soundscapes. Mm-hmm. I, I can never get enough of those. <laughs> well, we need, we need all, of, all of the work that you were doing, those two book projects, as well as um, the social, social justice reparative work uh, that you're helping to um, get accomplished. Um, all of these sound like wonderful things, uh, tremendously inspiring. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today and for speaking with us, Kito, about Paolo's diaspora, Black internationalism, and environmental justice. Thank you, Amanda. It was great to be here. It's great to be here. <laughs>